Welcome to the KPMG Financial Reporting Podcast Series, delivering fresh insights and perspectives around major accounting and financial reporting developments across a range of timely topics. We thank you for joining today. Welcome, everybody, to another edition of KPMG's Financial Reporting Podcast. I'm your host, Nick Tricarci, and today I am joined by an absolute dream team of debt equity experts. First, we have Patrick Gargiulo with us. Patrick is our topic team leader for debt equity and national office. Also happens to be the dean of Gargiulo University. So, Patrick, it's good to see you, man. Thanks for being on. What a great introduction. Thank you. I'm still looking for my degree, by the way, but we'll take that <laughs> offline. <laughs> we also have Megan Rona with us today. She's a managing director in our national office. And Megan, you spend, um, let me check my notes, all of your time answering debt equity questions? Almost all of it, yeah. <laughs> all right. So clearly an expert in the area. And then last but certainly not least, we have James Padu with us from our accounting advisory practice. And James has tons of experience advising clients on complex debt and equity transactions and brings with them lots of practical insights. So, James, we're thrilled to have you. Thank you for being with us. Yeah, thanks for having me on. The reason we've assembled this dream team today is because just before the holidays, on December 19, 2023, the FASB issued a proposed ASU that aims to improve the application of existing accounting guidance to induced conversions of convertible debt instruments. And this proposed ASU was actually based on a consensus that was reached by the EITF on various issues that had emerged in practice. So naturally, it's fairly narrow in scope. What the proposed ASU is really focused on is helping companies determine whether to apply the induced conversion accounting model or the debt extinguishment accounting model when convertible debt instruments with cash conversion features are settled at terms that are different from the original agreement. Obviously, there's a lot to unpack there with what I just said, so we thought it actually made the most sense to turn this into a two-part conversation. In part one, we're going to dive into the background on convertible debt. What is it? How does it work? Why do companies use it? And what are these existing accounting models that might apply once it's settled? If you're already an expert in these areas, then first, congratulations to you. And second, feel free to skip to part two of the conversation, which is when we explain what the proposed ASU says, why the FASB issued it, and what questions are still likely to remain, even if it becomes effective. So Patrick, let's start part one of this conversation with what I think is the most fundamental question, at least in my mind, and that is, what the heck do we mean when we say convertible debt instruments, and how do these tend to work in practice? Sure. So typically, convertible debt is an instrument that provides the holder or the investor with the option to convert the instrument to common shares of the issuing entity. That's basically convertible debt in a nutshell. Back in the day, these types of instruments were structured in a more traditional sense, I'll say. That is, upon conversion, the investor handed in the instrument to the issuer and received a fixed number of common shares. As a result, much of the literature that we have today was written with this type of instrument in mind. Let's refer to that as traditional convertible debt. Over time, though, variations of convertible debt instruments have become very prevalent in the marketplace, 
And those instruments provide the issuer optionality when they settle the instrument. That is, when the investor decides to convert, the issuer has an option on how they will convert it. I'm going to refer to these as cash convertible instruments. The most common instruments in the cash convertible instruments world that we have today are what we refer to as instrument C and instrument X. Instrument C requires the issuer upon conversion by the holder to settle the accreted principal amount of the debt in cash. That's required in instrument C. But the issuer has the option to settle what I'll refer to the in-money piece or the conversion spread of the option in cash shares or a combination thereof. Instrument X, however, provides the issuer with even more flexibility than instrument C. And once the holder decides to convert, the company has the choice to settle the conversion value in either cash shares or any combination thereof. So that's convertible debt in a nutshell. Okay. No, that's helpful. I was actually thinking of my six-year-old son as you were talking and not because he's a debt equity expert, at least I don't think he is. That would be kind of freaky, <laughs> but you know, convertible debt, he's obsessed with transformer toys, right? You get the car, but it could transform into a robot. And this kind of sounds like the accounting version of a transformer toy, right? Like we have debt that we can then transform into something else entirely equity in this case. And obviously it's more complicated in terms of how it gets settled as you described in, in one of those instrument acts, that sounds more like a villain in his superhero cartoons, <laughs> an accounting term, but you know, I digress. So, okay, I got the background on how these things work. And you mentioned it's usually up to the holder, the lender, the investor, whatever we want to call them to exercise this conversion option, right? But what if the borrower or the issuer wanted that counterparty to convert? Are there things they can do to make that happen, to incentivize them? Well, I'll tell you something my parents used to tell me. Anything is possible. And in this case, in many instances, the issuer and borrower will reach an agreement, if you will, on settling the convertible debt, and both will walk away very happy. This proposed ASU provides clarifications about the accounting for a conversion of a convertible debt instrument as to whether the investors have been induced to convert the instrument. So that is, the issuer of convertible debt may offer additional consideration, cha-ching, cha-ching, to the investor to induce conversion of the instrument or potentially tweak some of the original terms in the original agreement. That additional consideration or the tweaking sometimes is referred to in the market as the sweetener or a kiss to induce them to do something and may include there's all different things that can be done but it may include for example a reduction in the conversion price it could include the issuer providing additional securities whether it be typically a warrant or in many cases, it also includes or can also include a little cash payment to induce the holder to come in and convert the debt. 
sounds like the borrower can entice the lender into converting, but to do so, they got to give something up, right? That sweetener that you talked about, giving them something a little extra, which I'm very familiar with as a parent. My six-year-old's promising he's going to eat his dinner. He's going to do his chores if I buy him that transformer toy. So <laughs> maybe got he's it. a debt equity expert. And I just don't know. I got <laughs> I got to keep my eye on him. But all right, James, you are an actual expert in this area, and I want to bring you into the conversation because you know I always think it's helpful when we put this into perspective of like when do we see this actually happening in the marketplace, right, in the real world. So can you just maybe give us a little perspective on a couple things? One, why do companies issue convertible debt in the first place as part of their financing strategy? And then secondly, in your experience, when have you seen these induced conversions come up in practice? Yeah, sure. Happy to help. So the main reason most companies decide to issue convertible debt is primarily to kind of lower their interest cost, if you will, because effectively the company is able to issue an instrument, a note that has a lower interest rate because they're exchanging the economics of providing this conversion feature, allowing the holder to potentially get an upside based on the company's equity. And so kind of going to what Patrick said before about the instrument C and instrument X debt instruments, usually in the past few years or five, 10 years, we've seen primarily instrument X debt instruments being issued. Instrument X is typically being issued because it gives the company a lot of flexibility as to how they would settle the conversion option. And so companies like that, they have a lower interest that they have to account for on their books, as well as if ideally the company's stock price trajectory-wise is on the up and up, then they are able to actually settle that appreciation and value depending on whatever form of consideration is most maybe lucrative for them at the time. In terms of the actual, let's say, want to induce conversion, we've typically seen a variety of reasons as to why a company might want to do that. I mean, sometimes they're just trying to simplify their capital structure based on you know, their position. Currently, they might want to remove or limit the possibility of dilution to their current shareholders to maybe give some value back. It could be deleveraging, or quite honestly, it could just be in contemplation of a, an anticipated transaction they're trying to execute. Okay. No, that's great. I mean, in terms of why they do it, lower interest rate, more flexibility, and then yep. the investors gets the upside if that company's stock price appreciates. It makes sense why we see these out there. So Patrick, let me come back to you. We talked about what these things are, how they generally work. James just gave us some perspective on where we see these come up in practice. Let me pivot and ask, why does this matter from an accounting perspective? whether someone's induced into a conversion or not. Does that impact the accounting? Do we have different models for those? Can you, you know, maybe just walk us through that? Well, Nick, I think you know me well enough that I really enjoy listening to myself speak. But in this instance, I speak with a purpose. And yes, <laughs> there is a significant difference in the accounting for conversions versus induced conversions. So I will throw a wrench into this and say, by the way, if you don't account for it under conversion accounting or inducement conversion accounting, you're probably going to be in an extinguishment model, which is another model. So conversion accounting itself is real simple. There's no P&L impact. You just take your old debt balance and plug it into equity. Piece of cake. Inducement accounting takes the conversion accounting model, so you're going to still do that, 
But that sweetener I spoke about before, or that little kiss that I spoke about before, that is an expense. So in short, conversion accounting, no P&L impact. And inducement accounting will be a P&L impact. In essence, the inducement model is recognizing the cost of that additional consideration offered to the investor to induce them to convert. Okay, so drastically different answers there. You mentioned debt extinguishment, right? Which is a different third model, which I think is different than those first two. Can you just contrast what you just said with our normal debt extinguishment model? That question is music to my ears. Thank you. So (laughs) the extinguishment model is different than that. The extinguishment model requires an entity to recognize an extinguishment gain or loss based on the difference between the fair value of everything you gave the investor, shares, cash, warrants, whatever you gave them, that goes on your books at fair value, and then you remove the old carrying amount of the deck, and the difference is generally going to be a loss on extinguishment. Okay, so three different models, three different possible answers. It sounds to me that it's really important that somebody understands which model they're in, right, with convertible debt. Because at the end of the day, when the debt's converted, it's gone. And so we've got to figure out how to account for that transaction. Exactly, Nick. Okay. Obviously, without clear guidance in the literature, a growing concern in the industries are that significant accounting differences in settlement will exist for similarly and economically similar instruments. Well, Patrick, we didn't even rehearse this, but you just gave us the perfect segue into part two of the conversation, which I mentioned at the beginning is all about the proposed ASU, because I think the FASB heard those growing concerns loud and clear that we were potentially getting different accounting outcomes for transactions that were very similar economically. And so they decided to issue this proposed ASU to help clarify which accounting model should be applied and when. So if you want to hear more about what that proposed ASU says, please join us back here for part two of the conversation. We'll invite Megan back, and she's going to help break it all down for us. So take care, everybody, and thank you for listening. For more in-depth financial reporting developments, analysis, and podcast episodes, please visit frv.kpmg.us. And be sure to subscribe today. Also, we are social. You can also follow us on LinkedIn at KPMG Financial Reporting View or with hashtag KPMG FRV.